Okay, so do you want a soda or anything? I've got some Fresca. Do you want something to drink? Do you have a Diet Coke? I think I want a Diet Coke. I, 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 you I've are got Fresca. Fresca. Oh, gr great, and protein drink. No, <laughs> I think I'll be good, but do you have a pen? Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. Okay, everybody. Hello again. And um, this is Dr. Todd Fredericks, Associate Professor of Family Medicine at The Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. But I'm not there today. I am actually in beautiful Salt Lake City in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains at the University of Utah, which is an awesome place. It has a beautiful football stadium. I don't even like football. It, 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 the University of Utah Utes, um, many of you know about them. And I'm, why am I here? I'm here because I'm interviewing Dr. David Morton, PhD anatomist, who is the notable anatomist. By the way, David, do you, do you have a YouTube button? YouTube button. You know how they send, if you have enough YouTube subscribers, they send you a, a so button. So it's funny you say that because my children were just saying, Dad, you get, because that's how I knew I'd get 100,000 subscribers. My children were like, Hey, Dad, you hit 100,000, you get a button. I'm like, I don't know. So, well, you so, got you have a button. So I, I don't have one yet. <laughs> when you <laughs> get your button, I need a selfie with your button. We'll, I'll throw it up on Twitter. I will make sure you get it. I mean, done. it's a big thing, David. It was very cool. 100,000 subscribers. Yeah. <laughs> no, one, no one clicks on your stuff if they don't want to watch it. Yeah, so that's kind of you to say. So my, uh, it's funny. I don't have a lot of cool factor in my teenage boy's eyes, but that seemed to be one of them that they saw that. Cool you factor. got that going for you. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't think you have any trouble staying humble. You don't even know about YouTube buttons, so I know that I know the hubris isn't part of your life. But for a lot of people, that that'd be a hubris generator, and yet not you. Well, uh, I, my boys told me about it, and I, evidently I get an email in the next three months or something like that. So are your kids like mine, where they don't even know what you do really for a living? It's funny. I had to bring my children to the lab because they didn't quite know what I did. So I brought them to the lab, even so. You know, it's an anatomy lab, so usually we don't bring anyone under college age here. But at the time, I had, you know, all my children were, they're now between the ages of 11 and 21, the five of them. But it was like three or four years ago, I brought them all. Brought them all through the lab, even my youngest, Jack. And they all went through the lab. And my oldest son, Jared's like, yeah, it's all right, Dad. And then he came to my office. My daughter, Ireland, was really into it. Gabriel, Max, and Jack were like all in. They were right there holding tissue and learning. They loved it. Dad's an anatomist. That's the coolest thing on the planet. So... I don't know if they think it's the coolest thing on the planet. They think the lab is the coolest thing on the planet. Well, you've got skulls in your office. Well, it's funny. When you came, it's so, like, almost, like, uh, stereotypical. But the video I'm working on right now is on the skull. So I have this here because there's certain things I'm looking at. Oh, it's a reference why. model. Yeah, it's reference. Like, I've actually, it's funny because I usually don't have a skull sitting on my desk. It's very Hamlet slash stereotypical of an anatomist. Well, this but, is yeah. good. So you've got a skull video. When do you release that? When's it going? When's it get posted? Tomorrow. Oh, so I can't tease it. So probably if, in, in, in four months, what's it going to be? So I can oh. tease. <laughs> I can tease your content and say what's going up on Notable Anatomy. <laughs> yeah. So yours, yours are extreme. Not that mine are not professional, but you have so much editing that you do for the work you do, Todd. Mine, I purposely make it so that it's very easy. I make a good recording. I've got my to. microphone there. Yeah. I hook it up, go through. So if a 15-minute video maybe takes me 40, 45 minutes to do because I stop, delete, start again, stop, start, delete again. By the time I'm done and uploaded it, 
45 minutes, and it's done, finished. All in Keynote. All in Keynote. And do you even deal with Blackboard or any of the other uh, university tools for student class no, organization? And, and the main reason is it's, it takes away... I don't have to, like, a lot of people use Camtasia. Camtasia is a wonderful software. I actually tried working with Camtasia for a while as, mm -hmm. for, as well. And maybe down the road I will. I've just found that just like Armando, mm -hmm. just like Dr. Najib, just like Khan Academy, mm -hmm. they found their niche. Yes. Khan Academy using a tablet. Armando, his own drawings. Dr. Najib uses a whiteboard. Me, it's Keynote. And I've, and I've got it, and I know how to use it and be as efficient and expertise in as I can on it. So. so this raises a question because there's a lot of YouTube people that obviously make a living off of YouTube. And there's all these issues with monetization and stuff. I mean, what happens to, to this approach? Maybe it's not possible if YouTube runs out of bandwidth. I mean, what, right now it doesn't cost us anything to put anything on YouTube, right? You throw it on there, YouTube puts ads on there as they see fit. And you just kind of move along. What do you think happens, David? If, if, because this is your resource now. How do you change that if, if suddenly you can't get this up on YouTube as a vehicle? Because that's really a game changer. That's a great question. And I don't have an answer for it. I, um, I know that when individuals mm -hmm. who do make a living out of this, which I don't make a living out of this, but individuals who do, it's devastating when they change the algorithms. I don't even know when they change the algorithms and such a night. And then I start hearing mumbling through the YouTube yeah. community about, oh, I can't believe they did this and it changed the monetization. I don't do this for the monetization. I will say that if YouTube does go away and implodes, there'll be something else. So mm -hmm. the, the, this is the interesting thing. The number one search engine on the Internet is Google. The number two search engine for the Internet is YouTube, which is also owned by Google. Yes. So the big elephant running searching of information at the moment is Google, whether through Google search engine or YouTube. So if I were to put money down and say I put a lot of, not money is probably not the right word, if I'm putting my efforts towards something to upload my educational videos for free so everyone who wants to access them can access it, yeah. I'm putting them on YouTube. That's the best bet at the moment. I don't think, I, I, I love YouTube. But, I, but the thing is, you're right, though, when you take a look at other things that would have, like, um, that there's other medias that people have put up, and then they went away after a while. Yeah. Um, this is one I think is a pretty good bet for the near future. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm going to talk about medical education and this okay. wonkish stuff about medical education in light of these new technologies, in light of what's going on. And I hope you guys will bear with me. By the way, just to end them... Dr. Morton has an air handler in his office, so when you hear this after post-production, I will not probably be able to get rid of the air handler. It's not his <laughs> fault. He's probably the safest person on the University of Utah, because if there is, I mean, Hill Air Force Base is right down the road, so if the Russians decide to target it with something bad, he's going to survive. All of his, his anatomy lab will survive, and he'll survive, because he's like in the seventh level below ground in this, in this bunker <laughs> and, thing. And that's what I, my lab is, as Todd said, literally next door to the lab, so they have a really strong ventilation system going, hence why. You, you have to. <laughs> where's, it, where's this going? So I have, a, I have a theory that the future of medical education looks like five to ten subject matter experts nationwide in every discipline who happen to be expert content generators and who are paid a royalty by every school that endorses their content. So maybe a medical school looks like a lot of clinical simulation, a lot of case integration, but then very little 
that actually occurs at the medical school that is direct instruction. And not only that, but do you need as many faculty members if you've got five or ten really high quality content experts and, and a person can a access that anatomy instruction, does a medical school need to have eight anatomists on staff? And this is an uncomfortable conversation because obviously there are people who have dedicated their lives to getting their PhDs and doing work. How does that look? And I would just say one other thing. One of our anatomists, who I won't mention him, but I, I like him. He's a great colleague. He's got a whole line of research going on. It's very important in what he does. I mean, does that offset this? What does that look like, you think? So um, we have, we speak, we, we have, you and I share a lot of common feelings on this about, one, medical education is far too expensive. Yeah. Far, far, from a personal uh, level, that was one of the reasons that I went into academics was the financial burden was too much, though it wasn't the only factor. And these students are coming with a quarter million dollars and more in debt, and it's a very tough thing. Could you make it cheaper? So I don't, I'm, I'm not high enough in academics to be able to answer that question because there's too many, so many costs associated with an institution. Mm -hmm. So that I don't know. Now your question about uh, 10 core educators. Yeah. Okay. That's what MOOCs were supposed to do. Massive open online courses. They yeah. call them MOOCs. And Yale, Stanford, Harvard saying, you know, what, why, are we, why are we trying to do teach pharmacology at every single medical school in the entire world? Why don't we just have one pharmacology course and then it'll be done? We make it a massive open online course that everyone in the entire world can use. Why don't we do this? So let's do So they did. And when there's a lot, like University of Leiden in the Netherlands does. This. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Australia's got them. A number more in the United States do this. So why hasn't it taken off? So uh, one of the reasons from a personal level why is that um, there's this structure that a curriculum is, uh, there's so many moving pieces to it. Uh, let me back up. I think it can work. And I believe it should work, especially from this idea of what do students need to be in a brick-and-mortar building for not to consume information. They can do that anywhere. Yeah. And why is it that we have so many people teaching, so many people teaching um, adrenergic receptors and in so many different schools where really adrenergic receptors for, for preclinical years has changed very little. You could create tutorials on that and everyone could use the same thing. It's that curriculum varies. So at the University of Utah, we cover adrenergic, all autonomic neurotransmitters and receptors in the second year. And so what happens is it requires pre-work and it requires foundation and foundational principles to understand adrenergic receptors in the context of anatomy and physiology and pharmacology. So where it falls in a curriculum. So if the tutorial uh, was created with uh, for a first-year course, maybe it'd be helpful for a first-year course, but it's not detailed enough for someone teaching cardiopulmonary renal medicine. Mm -hmm. Or if they start with cardiopulmonary renal medicine in mind, maybe it's too advanced for someone who's trying to learn in a curriculum in the first years. So what's happened is it makes it difficult to take the Lego pieces of all these different MOOCs and bring them in house to do. Yeah. That's the reason I don't think MOOCs have taken off the way that they were intended. And I, and, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way for MOOCs. I think massive open line online courses are an awesome thing. And I, I want to, in my own way, 
go that direction with the noted anatomist to make it more formalized, to get videos so you could have learning objectives, lecture handouts, assessments, homework, all of that together to make a good tool. At the moment, I recognize my students get all that stuff because it's on our canvas, but the rest of the students don't. They just get the videos. I'd love to make it so everyone can have it. But that's the reason why it hasn't got there yet. There's a financial burden that is, I don't quite understand how all the finances in medicine and medical schools work. And the other one is, there's so many moving pieces in making a curriculum, it's yeah. hard to take Legos from outside and make them fit in every curriculum. We found that with, uh, with Pathways to Health and Wellness at Ohio University. It is a massive undertaking to build a medical school curriculum. And that's just for two years. Exactly. Like, the, 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 the unknown unknowns, just blow your mind. And the third and fourth order effects of decisions here versus there. And we're in the process in the next year of doing curriculum mapping at a very intense level. Because you, you build all that and you got to figure out what did we forget? And what's redundant. You have to have it exactly. Oh, yeah. And I have great respect for the people who are trying to get a 50,000 foot view of this incredibly complicated machine called a medical school curriculum. But I, but I wonder, I mean, we pay royalties to... We pay royalties to Rock Band. Rush gets royalties, right? So you buy a record, they get a royalty. Does it, does it look like you build your content at University of Utah, uh, you, medical school, you at some state says, boy, we really like what Dr. Morton's doing. Can we just buy your content? And you funnel your assessment items into us. We'll put it into our testing system, and we're going to pay you. Do you think that's ever going to happen? Could. Yeah, I think it could. This is where when I, when I look at textbooks and... Where the it's so at Harvard, uh, Clay Christensen uh, in the Harvard Business School came up with the theory of the disruptive technology. And Absolutely. Was, and so that's when we see is disruptive technology is when you have the incumbent, and in the case of uh, external resources that you have a professor, the incumbent was you need to take anatomy, buy this textbook and this atlas. Okay, is what they did. That has been the incumbent forever. And then what happens is you get the new person that comes on board that says, I really want to get involved with this. And that those times were like little, like pathomas, little things like this. Yeah. And the incumbent said, oh, they're online. We're not going there right now. And I know this because I tried to get online when I first started with Elsevier in 2004 with my first textbook. And they're like, we don't know what to do with this digital stuff. And they just kept saying no wow. over 10 years until I finally gave up, which is why I'm doing my own videos on my own now. But... What's happened is it finally gets to the point where this little disruptive technology comes over until they overtake. Eventually, yes, the incumbent gives, literally gives away part of the market, gives away part of the market. So now what happens is you have textbooks that are like, uh-oh, what do we do now? And this is how we get the pathomas and the osmosis and the boards and beyond. And you have um, all of these different entities that are coming on board and institutions are now saying, okay, why don't we then get an institutional license for Boards and Beyond? Why don't we get an institutional license for Pathoma? Why don't we get an institutional license for, actually, I don't know if you can do for Pathoma, but these other entities like Firecracker and these that they give these institutional licenses where now the incumbent, the universities and preclinical professors are saying, we are now going to, instead of requiring a textbook and a discipline, require students to use an online, external, commercially available resource that covers everything. And so what's happened is students want everything integrated. And that's where the future is kind of going. And what, for me, the fear, it's not a fear like, oh, am I going to have a job? 
my, it becomes, it behooves me mm -hmm. as a professor to say, okay, what value am I now adding to these medical students if they're learning their content through a boards and beyond or insert whatever else our students, a lot of them use boards and beyond or sketchy or osmosis. If they're consuming their content, then what am I doing? So I go back to one of my premises. What do I do in my class that a student couldn't do for 20 minutes on their own? They can consume information. Students need help with thinking and solving problems. So that's what I'm using my time in the classroom to do. Yeah, because there's this uh, fixation. I, I tend to be a little bit uh, sarcastic and I have to worry about that. But the new and shiny objects uh -huh. uh, that, uh, that people that are high up in, in large organizations think that building a building and I'm very careful about it because we're in the process of building a new medical school. Not, I don't think it's the new shiny object. I think our medical school is very old. I think we need a new building. <laughs> but I would just say that people who conflate, so this is a separate discussion from what's happening at OU. But let's just say people think that, that education is a building or education is a customer experience or... And I say this in light of the fact that Salt Lake's building a new airport, so I'm going through and watching this new construction. I know, a huge airport. Yeah. It, and it's going to be awesome. It's very well thought out. Sometimes, and when it's well thought out, it's really good, right? When a medical school is well thought out before they build it. But what is, for people who are just fascinated by the new shiny objects, what do you arm a dean with today, mm. given the fact that you know what happened? Well, let's take about Khan Academy. Khan Academy's fallen off the face of the earth. It didn't survive very well. That's how we get osmosis, is everyone who was at Khan Academy Medicine made right? osmosis. What do you advise a medical school dean in this new age of online content to say, okay, you're being sold a by this group of architects, this new shiny object. This is the real new shiny object you should be looking at. If you're really going to go get a new shiny object, this is kind of what it should look like given the future. Because, again, in Ghana, you've got a medical school that is very austere, but they're learning content that's state-of-the-art for an American uh, medical school. I, I believe that principles are, if leadership needs to, uh, that I'm a leadership uh, principle-led leadership model. Sure. That was very awkwardly said, Todd. I think what you did a great job. <laughs> Thank you. Keep lying to me like that. Um, what I mean by this is you have a principle and it becomes the guiding force in decision. So one of my principles that I look at for education is you call it the shiny object and I think, and I, and I jokingly call a lot of things the silver bullet where someone says, yeah. oh, flip classroom. That's going to solve all of our problems. No MOOCs will solve all of our problems. No TBL, no CBL, no PBL. That's going to solve all of our problems. No, 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 no. Just any online video is going to solve our problems. No small group solve our problems. No active learning is going to solve our problems. And you, don't, and you go to conferences and everyone's always telling you the new shiny object, the silver bullet that will solve everything. So the principle I fall back to all the time is, what is the end result? What is it we want students to do? We want them to be able to solve problems. To solve problems, what do they need? We then do backward design. They need information and be able to understand that information. How are they going to consume that information? Well, so what I found is it's not the magic bullet of it's flipped classroom or it's TBL or it's PBL or it's lecture or it's online videos or it's Khan Academy or it's this. You follow the principles of Tell students what they need to know, specific measurable learning objectives. Give them tightly knit pre-work that brings that together. Then use time together with the students as a way of applying that information. Give them more things that they can practice and an assessment that tests their learning objectives. There is 
the principles of all good education. Everything falls within those guidelines. And so if we're trying to make decisions on curriculum, I always come right back to that. So we've been having a decision in our curriculum committees about are we going to formally adopt. And so in our course, we actually found that what we did is we spent all of our time on learning objectives and then tell students, at this point in your second year, you've already found the resources you like. Mm -hmm. Here are the learning objectives. You need to learn those however you want. Sometimes we give them videos wow. ahead of time, especially ones that we have Andy Smith, my co, he's a pediatric uh, intensive care doc, and then I'm anatomy physiology. We will often prepare our own pre-work, but if it's content that's not our definite area specialty, we'll then find some other resource, give it as pre-work, but then in class we practice it. That's what we do of applying that information. So you, this is really good to me, you were trained in a certain model as a PhD, and you've got graduate students. Are your graduate students dialed in to how you are changing as an educator to learn to yeah. integrate those same concepts into yeah. their future as, 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 education, as yeah. educators? So I have like a little course I call MEDIC, Medical Dissection Instruction Course. And all the students that participate in this is basically, I, I train them in this philosophy. Yeah. I train so that everyone who teaches within my lab and teaches within the courses that I do all have the same philosophy. That's how they learned. They know that that's how the students, that they're going to help TA learn. That's the same model. Everyone knows you got to do work before you come to class. Everyone knows this. And if you don't, you should come to class anyways because the whole goal is to make an environment. So even if you make a mistake, yeah. you're not shamed. You're not made to feel dumb. That's something that we have done that somehow this got introduced in academics that it's bad to make a mistake, that it's wrong if you give a wrong answer. And, and if there's anything that we've... This is how we learn, is we make mistakes. It's not when you give the perfect answer. It's when you make a mistake and you discuss and build on it. And so that's something that's also part of the culture, is that when you come to class, you're not expected to be experts. You're just expected to know, have this information on the table of your brain so that you know where to look and see things on the table to bring out to try to answer questions. I think this is a really interesting segue because this next question I wrote was... Um, as a practicing family physician and tenure professor, my feeling is that the best medical schools would rely on a bulk of high-quality online content. At the medical school itself would really be a simulation center where students are required to employ patient exam and interview skills daily to refine their actual clinical skills. And the reason why I do that is because I'm the director of simulation at OU. Oh, are you really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know For interprofessional experience. So we have other simulation that goes on, but specifically for interprofessional experience, what I tell students is, because I have a military background, we go to simulators to find out what not to do. We, we, have, we know we're safe. We can do almost anything. We're not going to break anything. So I tell them that the only way they fail in that simulation activity is they don't fail catastrophically, that they need to find the failure modes in simulation so that when they go out, they don't have the failure mode. They say, I've been there before. I know that doesn't work. And so I'm curious. You, you kind of touched it. Would fail catastrophically. Well, that's what I told them. And they all know it. By the second year, I say, what's the objective of simulation? To fail catastrophically. So I think this changes kind of a, 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 an approach to education in that really telling students, this is where you have to make the errors. We want you to make lots of errors. What do you think about that? What do you think about a medical school where students... They don't do any real learning in this medical school in terms of their preparatory work or understanding those fundamentals. They have a little bit of, they have a little bit of help as groups, or they go through a particular pro section to bolster education they've learned on their own. But I have a feeling if the more patient encounters I get with the student early on, 
the quicker they lose bad habits, the quicker they understand empathy, the quicker they understand how to project those things, have a better and higher quality patient interaction. And then we have a lot of supervision as clinicians being able to oversee them and mentor them and say, look, that, that conversation didn't go quite right. Let's try that again. What do you think about a medical school that looks like that? And what's that's, the you do? Do they do any of that? Yeah, so that is where we need to go. That, that is definitely where we need to go. There is, I think that the number of deans that feel the same way as you that are saying the same question, Todd, of can we make an online two-year preclinical curriculum? And if we do, what are we missing? And it's the things you talked about. Yeah. It's the... It's the how do you interact with patients? How do you how do you cover empathy and sympathy and uh, listening skills and interaction? How do we do? That's where you need and so a lot. And I know that we're building our own new medical education building as well. Simulation is one of the big topics on this because what is simulation? It's something students can't do on their own in their kitchen at midnight in their pajamas while studying. Yes, they can't do simulation. That is something that you do need to be together with your experts, with your peers, at a physical location. Yeah. And so I think that really is a direction. I know with our clinical years, one of the things we have, we're getting really good at bringing clinical medicine from years three and four into the first two years. We're not doing so great getting the basic sciences back into the clerkships in years three and four. One of the ways that we are now trying to do this is through simulation. We're no longer just saying, well, I gotta give a lecture on the hepatic portal system. It's now, why don't we take a look at uh, liver challenges in general, and let's now go over anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, pathology, medicine, physical exam, and imaging in the context of a simulation center, and then that's when we review the anatomy of the hepatic portal system. Is that always in the context of integration with simulation? So. What are you doing with ultrasound in, in anatomy at DU? So we have ultrasound. Um, I. We've been introducing ultrasound now for about eight years. And when I say introducing ultrasound is the limiting factors. It's like saying, we really want to introduce cadaver labs, but we only have four cadavers for a class of 125 students. Yeah. It becomes a novelty, not core. Mm -hmm. And ultrasound up until this past year or two has been novelty and it's there in many aspects. We have it for three times throughout our labs when we open up the heart they do an ultrasound of the heart. We do ultrasound of the heart. We're doing the abdominal cavity. They do like hepatobiliary system, IVC, aortic, kidneys, and adrenals. When we do the head and neck, they're doing necks. You see IJs and thyroid and brachial plexus, stuff like that. Um, and then we go musculoskeletal. We're doing like shoulder joints, and then we're doing elbows, and we're doing knees, and we're doing hips. And so it's introduced throughout, but only recently has it started to get core because we got enough ultrasound machines, mm -hmm. and we have enough trained faculty. So now we have it in our clinical methods curriculum, which is a longitudinal curriculum of the first two years that they meet every week to go over elements of clinical medicine and ultrasounds now part of that. Yeah, you know about Butterfly IQ? Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I, I just, they're awesome. Yes. I, I'm, putting out a, I'm putting out a shameless plug for Butterfly IQ because I'm about to order my own system in, in June and I would, I would like to feel the love. I would like to feel the love of you guys sending me one of those units because that's... That's a game changer as far as a student goes out and buys a MacBook for medical school. Here's for the, for the same cost, you get your own ultrasound unit. And now everywhere you go, you can start doing MSK, you can start doing cardiovascular, you can start doing pulmonary trauma. I love the fact that now a student that doesn't have any licensure to really do anything, it can now become a really skilled imaging diagnostician 
or augment anatomy instruction with in vivo replication through ultrasound. I think it's cool. I think it's a really great time for medical students because of that technology coming in. I love it for the same reason I love anatomy. People want to see their own guts. They yes. want to see inside. So they, that's why they're fascinated by anatomy. Yeah. Now they can see it working. They can see the heart moving. They can see the IJ expanding and uh, dilating and, and going back to its size. They can see the IVC. They can see the liver and the kidneys and the baby. Everything. It's awesome. So do I have to go? So given everything that's available, do I have to go to do I have to go to lab to learn anatomy today? Oh, that's a great question. As a physician, because I'm a medicine guy, I'm not a uh -huh. surgeon. I'm a medicine man, right? Right, right? I know where your heart is. I don't have to know how to put it back together again. Do I really need to go to an anatomy lab anymore? Can I just great question. get enough anatomy between ultrasound, online resources? Am I well prepared without even going to an anatomy lab to practice good clinical medicine man type, I mean family medicine, internal medicine? Do I need to even go to an anatomy lab today? You know, I, I do like this question. And I am a traditional anatomist in that I believe the cadaver is the primary way of learning anatomy. I will say this, however. Um, whether it's dissection or prosection, I, I'm very much open to this question. And I'll tell you why. Medical students, when they had, when, when I first started, we had like 140 some odd hours mm -hmm. to dissect a cadaver from head to toe. We had two, maybe three labs a week at three hours each that they were able to do. So they had time. It wasn't a sprint. They had time to do methodic, thoughtful dissections. Mm -hmm. But you reach a point that we are now at something like 75 hours for mm -hmm. dissection. You reach a point of diminishing returns, which is dissection is an art in of itself. And you hit a point where you can't rush it. And if yeah. you rush it, you then, the quality of dissection, we get this point. And we're at this area that I'm in teeter-tottering between. And, and yes, all the arguments of tissue doesn't look like real tissue. Yeah, because it's embalmed from aldehyde, from aldehyde fixes tissues. That the dissection's not perfect. Yes, because they don't have the dissection expertise and they don't have the time. Those are all really good questions. And I agree. I'll tell you one of the reasons why I've been so hesitant to get rid of dissection is that at the University of Utah School of Medicine, we are not an online curriculum. We are bricks and mortar still. We have a lot of active learning, but we're bricks and mortar. Students that I don't think are unique at our institution is that they come in thinking they're gonna start med school and then they realize, I gotta take USMLE step one and very quickly realize that one test plays such an impact in my oh. career that it starts to be so, so crushing on, on their time. So what they think, again, this is my personal opinion, is their persona is, I'll be a doctor in year three. I just have to get through step one. And so there are very, very few things left in the preclinical years that says, I am in medical school right now. I'm not in college. I'm in medical school right now. And I am in a rite of passage that says, I'm doing what my forebearers did mm -hmm. generations before me that anyone who went to med school before they became a clinician they needed to walk through the doors of a cadaver lab and dissect a cadaver mm -hmm. this becomes part of my identity it becomes part of the transition from hey i was in college i'm now in med school i'm now a professional and more and more students are isolating themselves in the library and in their own homes, skipping class, only coming when they absolutely have to because they're studying videos, preparing for a standardized test that is void of all human interaction. 
that I can think of very, very few opportunities anywhere in a curriculum where they say, here's your, here's your, your lab mates, the three or four of you. You're going to be, here's your donor. This is Jessica. Jessica was a 78-year-old nurse, and she donated. She died of Alzheimer's disease eventually, and uh, she donated. Um, there's your donor. The five of you are responsible for taking care of this donor and dissecting learning anatomy. Go. And as a team, they dissect weekly. They don't have their, they don't have their social media there because we don't allow pictures being taken. Their social media is gone. Their computers are gone. They're at the cadaver. They're dissecting. There's energy. There's, there's interaction. There's communication. There's learning. There's, there's collaboration. There's, hey, guys, did you see this cool anomaly? They're going over to each other's donors and they're seeing this. I don't see that in many places in the preclinical curriculum. My fear is that if I get rid of dissection and or the cadaver lab experience, I will have eliminated one of the few remaining rites of passage that a student transitions from, hey, I just spent my four years killing myself to do well in the MCAT, I finally got into med school, and I'm back in my library on my own in this cave watching videos to take another standardized test. That's why I'm hesitant about the cadaver lab. And it's not the perfect answer, but that's one of the reasons I've, I have not gotten rid of it yet. You have just challenged me. <clears throat> the first the great thing about this interview, among many others, is that I know you got the same great anatomy that I did. The second thing is, <laughs> as much as a person that hated anatomy, I see your point on that. That is true. That is one of the last remaining four sociologically socialization aspects of medical school. Shared burden, you know, there's the shared experience of the burden of medical school. That's, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, and, and, it's, and the reason why I say it's not the perfect answer because your original question is, can you learn anatomy without dissection? And I believe you can. Yes. I do. My father-in-law, uh, is a, he went to McMaster University in Canada, and they were a very progressive school in, in the way that they did things, and they didn't have to go to cadaver lab. And my father-in-law, like you, hated the cadaver lab. And he went through all med school. He went to the lab twice the entire time. And he's a fan, one of the best doctors I know, one of the best bedside manners. Uh, so yes, you can learn. So in answer, so I answered your question. I answered the wrong question. I answered both of them. So your Just question: of, Can you can you learn? Yeah, can you learn anatomy <laughs> without dissection? Yes, I believe you can. And and what we need to know in the preclinic here is enough. But then again, like one of the reasons I take my job so seriously and I love my job is I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm ushering. I get to be there and walk with these students as they enter med school. I'm like, hey, welcome to med school. And they walk down. In our lab, we have in our hallway uh, pictures of every single graduating class from the first time we have pictures, which is 1944. Yeah. That they walk in and they see the most recent class. And as they walk down towards the lockers into the change room, they see every graduating class and they can take a look and go oh there's dr samuelson he's the dean of the school of medicine oh there's dr pippet she directs our foundations of medicine course oh take a look at dr putnam she's a teaches all of our pathology class they see these professors they and they see that i am now part of this tradition and we don't have and if i take dissection i need to make sure that i replace it with something that can do similar to that. See, what I'm yearning to do is say, preach it, brother, because <laughs> when, I went to, when I went to medical school, we had the same thing. I'm going to shame my own school, and they know that I have the best of intentions, but we used to have pictures of every class in the main hall. They took them all down. They put these generic pictures of the campus all around. 
I, I, I'm sure it wasn't, I'm sure someone advised them. They said, this is a better thing or something. I don't, but I remember that feeling that when I first graduated, I was the last picture on the wall. And years later, I came back, and now I'm just a picture in the middle. I'm part of a legacy of things going on. Legacy's the word. And it reminds me of the burden that I have to be faithful to the legacy of people who came before me and people who came after me and make sure that even as wacky and as eccentric as I am, that I'm not taking away. And I really think that's a powerful thing you just said. So whoever's in charge at OU, Dr. Schreiner, I think you are, <laughs> I think the pictures need to go back up of every class for exactly what Dr. Morton's saying. It is a legacy to us. It is a symbol of, I am part of something bigger than just myself. Look at all these faces. I've had to, I love that. Thank you, for, thank you for backing me up on something that's driven me nuts for years. That where the pictures go of the classes? It has a powerful impact. Yeah, it's, and it's for me, that's the one thing in academics and higher education, institutions of higher learning we have that I feel like I'm part of. I, I, when, I was, when I was 16, my, mm -hmm. one of my first jobs that I, I worked at gas stations and babysitting and things like that and, and dishwashing, but one of my first jobs where I went in and it was like, I had very regular hours and I was 16, I was a bus boy. And it was a Relay and Chateau restaurant called the Millcroft Inn in Alton, Ontario. It was a very fancy, and I was lived in a farming community, so it was like the fancy thing that everyone from Toronto came north to go to. Hmm. And the reason why I tell you this is that I was a bus boy. What did I do? I cleared tables. That's what I did. But because it was a Relay and Chateau restaurant, because it had this tradition of French fine cuisine from Europe, everyone wore black pressed pants, black socks, black shoes, a white tuxedo shirt with a black bow tie, and a very clean pressed apron. That when I put this on, and I had a name badge that had my name on it, that I felt like I was part of something bigger. I was a busboy, I cleared tables, but I had pride in this because I was doing, I felt like I was something bigger than myself. Yeah. And academics is something similar. When we come on board, you don't go to academics to sit in a library and barricade yourself off from the world which is where a lot of our anxiety and depression come from these poor students who are trying to get ready for this board. Huge problem. So it's the one of the few times they can come on and realize they are, and remember they came to med school, to be part of something bigger than a cubicle in a library. And, a, and in my opinion, an asinine multiple choice exam. Yeah. That, that this becomes, they come in and they realize... For hundreds of years, medical doctors have been doing this. For hundreds of years, they've been learning anatomy this way. This is their first patient. This is the experience. So that's why I, I really love my job. And this happens in the first week of med school when they come in. So. Wow. I, I'm even hesitant to, to give the last questions because that was such a great, a great, a great soliloquy. I love that. Well, thank you. So... So where do you go next? What is what 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 where do you go next, and what does medical school look like in twenty years? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I would say that I, I always have five ten year plans in my academics. So for me, in the next five to ten years, one of the things I want to do is institute a, an educational training program for the medical schools in Ghana and West Africa, where that they they do not have an opportunity to get around as often for conferences, mm -hmm. and to learn and be trained in a lot of these things and so I'd like to help establish a training program where a lot of my colleagues in Ghana are learning and implementing these principles of active learning 
constant educational pedagogy and that they are now training themselves, kind of like a train the trainer program. Yeah, of course. That's one of the big things I want to do. I Teach them to fish. Yes. Funny you say that because when I first started doing work in Ghana, it was always that thing. If you teach someone to fish, if you, te- if you get someone to fish, they eat for a day. If you teach them to fish, you feed them for a lifetime. But then the question came to me, what happens if they don't want fish or they don't like fish? Yes. So that was for technology. I wanted to do technology. But I'm like, but maybe they don't want technology. So I'm trying to force fish. And over these years, going these collaborations, they're hungry for these types of active learning because they know this is the direction everyone knows is the direction medicine's going in medical education. Uh, some other things I really want to have got, like probably another hundred videos that I've started and haven't finished. So I've got a New Year's resolution. I'm kind of saying this to help keep me to the task to, to publish at least one video a week for the rest of the year yeah. to try to get all these videos that are like half done, partially done, or I've actually done them, but I don't like them enough. So I just put them on a Dropbox folder and I use with my students, but I haven't posted on YouTube. So I'm going to finish all of those. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. And then with regards to the future of medicine, I'm, I really believe some of the things you've talked about, which is pushing more out to students on their own. And if we do, if we bring them into the school to make sure their activities that they can't do on their own, a lot of simulation, a lot of active learning, small group learning is the direction we're going. So, yeah. yeah. What have we missed? It's a long conversation, but a lot of good thoughts. A lot of conversation. I blabbed a lot here, Todd. No, um, that's the point. You're supposed to blab. No one wants to hear me. <laughs> Everyone wants to hear. That's why they're listening to your podcast. Maybe. Your videos are very, very professionally done. And so I'm looking forward to seeing more. Watch Embrace the Sled. And uh, it's, 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 it's not out yet? No, it's, it's, it's out. a short. When Dogs of War comes out, it's going to be really compelling. You're going to... I filmed it... It's being filmed, I should say, very cinematically. It's going to be very, very tear-jerking. I'm, I look forward to seeing You're that. going to see a relationship that is just off the charts when it comes to canines and their humans. And why doctors need to understand and appreciate that and advocate for... for so, so I meant to tell you, I was on a flight yeah. last year and there was a there was a vet beside me. Yeah. And he had a dog mm. at his feet. Mm. And so, and it had a sign, you know, don't pet or something along that. We're sitting there and we're on the runway for like eternity. So I just started talking to him and, and he said that he goes, he says that he had done three tours in Iraq mm-hmm. and, he, and he said he was... Uh, it, it might have been Iraq and Afghanistan. I, I apologize. I can't remember which ones. But he said that on the last one, he was really tough and he had a little hard time. And someone recommended, he said, he said, and named the dog. because she's the best. She just, she, she knows. She'll just lit, come up and lean against me. He goes, it's like the most touching thing. I'm like, and he, him talking about it, I'm like, man, God bless you, man. And that dog, I'm like, it's fantastic. And it was really neat that, that when you told me about this movie, I'm like, I'm excited to see it. So uh, I have to tell you a quick story before we finish up uh, about uh, Sergeant First Class Bo. One thing we learned about in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan was the value of combat stress control. So Combat of? Stre- combat stress control. Okay, thank you. So there are combat stress control units that are physically dislocated from any hospital. They're made up of, socio- they're made up of social workers, psychologists, and they're specifically for soldiers who have endured moral trauma, uh, issues that are leading to really bad right. cognitive things. The combat stress control dogs, we realize very, of course, dogs have a nose like nothing else on the planet. The dogs can smell cortisol. So what combat stress control dogs are trained to do, Sergeant First Class Bow, is sense cortisol levels. And so you'd bring a vet in, you'd set him down in the room, it's not near a hospital, you're not a, you are not a physical, you're, you're not damaged. 
You just need to go, we would say, go pet the dog. You need to go pet the dog for a while. The, person, the soldier would sit down. Bo is trained to come up and park himself right underneath the soldier's hand. Because naturally, the soldier's hand would fall on the dog, and mm -hmm. he'd start petting the dog. Mm -hmm. Psychologists wait about 20 to 30 minutes of him petting the dog in an acute presentation, and then they could take the soldiers, calm down enough to say, what's going on with you? Let's help you out. All because a dog can sense cortisol in his train when he triggers on cortisol to go find the source of the cortisol, sit down, and let whatever that source is pet him. And the curious thing about that was Bo was feeling... That is amazing. It is. That's why when you learn, the more you learn about dogs and what they can do, it just blows your mind. And I could tell you go on forever, which I won't because this is your interview. But Bo is famous because the U.S. Army, like everything else, has regulatory guidance about what a canine should be. Well, a black Labrador for the U.S. Army Veterinary Corps should have a confirmation of these, this envelope. Sergeant First Class Bo is so popular in Iraq that he had to have his own room dedicated for all the dog treats and toys that were being sent by families who were being told by soldiers about their experience with Sergeant First Class Bo and sending enormous amounts of food to Bo. Bo is the fattest Labrador retriever I've ever seen. That's awesome. All because Bo went to Iraq and, and did his job. And so, yeah. Man's best friend. It's amazing. So, so true. Yeah. Um, what, what have we missed? Anything? Anything else you want to know? No, I just think it's great. I, I, I just really am glad. It, for those of you who are listening, this is a regular, this is going to be a longer segment. That's okay. It's worth it. Um, you know, I called David out of nowhere because the way this started was a student said, do you know about the Notable Anatomist? I said, no. I immediately went to YouTube. I looked up David Morton. And I found, I know he's an academic. I found, he's at the University of Utah. So I said, he's like literally... 20 miles from my, my second home here. And I said, I'll just email him. So I emailed him. And then on a lark, I was out here visiting my folks, taking care of some business. My parents are elderly, so it's helping my mom get back from Ohio. And I, out of the blue, pinged David and said, hey, do you mind if I come over and interview you? Because I, I'm really interested in how we're teaching students today. And of course, we've already talked about through the series about what David's doing to contribute to that. And he just opened his doors and now here we are, and that's the wonderful thing about... In the bowels of our building. I could have done it by phone, but this is so much better. Right? This is so much better. I just want to thank you, David, for being part of this. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank Tom. you so much. And, and for those of you who have listened uh, faithfully, I hope you got a lot out of this. I hope it generates dialogue and discussion among all educators about the value of a brick-and-mortar school for, for bonding students, giving them a sense of legacy, a sense of purpose, but also how necessarily the way we use those institutions is going to change as we develop content and how Flip Classroom is going to change how we educate students, how they educate themselves, and what the real purpose of the medical school needs to be in the development of first and second year medical students. So with that, I bid you uh, an adieu. I'm going to try to make it to the front runner so I can get up to my folks' house, and um, I'll catch you in the next episode of Rotations. Thanks a lot. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. 
This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks, hosted by Todd Fredericks, and edited by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we sometimes pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. You must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema for Todd, at Prof Plow for Brian, Nisarg Bakshi for Nisarg Bakshi, and at Rotations Pcast, or by visiting MediaMedicine.com slash Rotations. Check us out on Facebook at Media and Medicine. And finally, from me, Todd Fredericks, you can also send me a message through my Facebook page at TR Fredericks. But please, I have a sensitive feelings, so embrace your inner non-hater. This segment. Have you have you listened to a rotation segment? I have not. It's on iTunes. Okay. There's, I don't there's have an iPhone. Thirty-four episodes. You can listen to it on SoundCloud. Okay. You can listen to We're it on, on SoundCloud. There's, do you have a computer? I do, but I don't listen to. I listen to podcasts <laughs> in my truck driving home. You can listen to the podcast. You can subscribe. Okay. And listen, listen to, to yourself. It. Yeah. You can. That sounds so weird. Like I don't think it's I'll do totally it. weird. It is very People weird. like uh, Jerry and. Aaron, secretaries at work, they're like, oh, we can't wait to listen to this. And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you how to find it. <laughs>